0: What makes an entrepreneur successful, it's not how much you've learned, it's not, you know, how nice your business cards are, it's do you have clients? Actually, acquiring clients would have been the most important thing I could have done. Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Varol. Today's guest on the show is Dory Clark. Dory is a consultant and keynote speaker and the author of the three books, Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of 2015 by Inc. Magazine. A former presidential campaign spokeswoman, Dory, has been described by the New York Times as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. Dory consults and speaks for a diverse range of clients and teaches executive education. She is a former... Award winning journalists, She directed the uh, environmental documentary film The Work of 1000, and she was also a producer for a multiple Grammy winning jazz album. Dory is just an all around amazing person with one of the most wide ranging backgrounds of anyone I've ever met. To read any of the 500 free articles that Dory has written for publications like Forbes, the Harvard Business Review, and Entrepreneur, you can visit her website, which is doryclark.com. That's D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com. And if you'd like to build the career you want, you can download the free 88-question Entrepreneurial You self-assessment at doryclark.com forward slash entrepreneur. In the episode, Dory and I talk about what Dory learned from being laid off from her first newspaper job, why a diversity of skills is crucial in the modern job market, what holds people back from diversifying themselves, and what can people do about it. We talk about how being a freelance journalist helped Dory prepare for the entrepreneurial life, why learning how to run a business didn't actually help Dory launch her first business, Dory talks about the very first step that all entrepreneurs must take, how Dory lives by the what she calls the optimize for interesting philosophy. And finally, we talk about the personal and professional failures that Dory values the most. Before I play you the interview, my book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, is now available for pre-order. It will come out on April 14th in all formats, but you can pre-order the book now. And download a digital copy within seven days of your pre-order. That means you can start reading it months before the book is released to the public. All you have to do is head over to rocketsciencebook.com, purchase the book from one of the links used there, and forward your receipt to rocket at com. You'll get digital access to the book, as I mentioned, but you'll also get pre-order bonuses that are worth at least 10 times the cost of a single copy. I've been excited, really excited about the early reviews of the book. The book was named a must-read by Susan Kane. Endlessly Fascinating by Daniel Pink and Bursting with Practical Insights by Adam Grant. The book was also selected by Adam Grant as his number one pick among his top 20 books of 2020. Without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Dory Clark. And thank you, as always, for listening. Dory, welcome to the show.
0: Ozan, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks.
1: As I mentioned to you before we started recording here, I've had a lot of people on the show with really wide-ranging backgrounds and really diverse experiences, but you have just about everybody else beat. Uh, your life experience, your work experiences, the diversity of it is really, really admirable and privileged to be speaking with you. Thank you for for joining us. I uh, want to take you back to September 2001. You were fresh out of grad school at that point, and you were Working as a political reporter at a weekly newspaper, can you tell us what happened?
0: I can, absolutely. So I was in my first job and... I didn't really know a lot about life in the in the working world. And so I was pretty unsuspecting when I got a phone message from our HR person that he wanted to see me. But uh, he called me into the office and it turned out they were laying me off. And so I had to go pack up my stuff and leave before the end of the day. And I was really upsetting, of course, to uh, to lose my very first job. I you know, had not been expecting it. I did not have a plan B. And so I was worried about how I would pay my bills and things like that. But I, I said, okay, you know, I'm going to yeah, tomorrow morning, I'm going to get out there. I'm going to pound the pavement. I'll find another job. And of course, uh, unfortunately in the next morning turned out to be September 11th, 2001. So it was uh, a pretty chaotic and frightening time to be looking for employment. So it definitely taught me a lot of uh, early lessons about exactly how precarious having a quote-unquote day job or a steady job actually is.
1: Yeah, I'd love to dig a little deeper on that point because I think one of the things that scares people about leaving their day jobs and and launching into an entrepreneurial career is that working without that quote-unquote guaranteed salary can be really scary to to a lot of people. So what did that experience teach you specifically about that lesson, which I know I've heard you speak about and write about before, but I think it'd be valuable for our, our listeners to hear here.
0: Yeah. I mean, the main lesson is that it, it taught me that whatever whatever you are implicitly promised, and in fact, sometimes even what you are explicitly promised if your company ends up, you know, for instance, going out of business and then they don't have money to, to pay you, you can't really rely on that. Where true security comes from is diversification and from having your own clients and from having a number of different clients. And in fact, even, you know, this is the, the topic of my latest book, Entrepreneurial You, sometimes it's it's even useful to go beyond diversity in terms of number of, uh, of clients and think about diversity in terms of the types of work or the types of projects or uh, the types of business streams that you have. Because when when you have that, it protects you against the downside. It protects you against unexpected trends or developments or things like that, and it lets you capture more upside. Um, so it, it really, uh, I think that this the scales fell from my eyes pretty early on as a result of of getting laid off from that first job. And I realized that uh, it was a little bit naive to think that some entity would make a promise to you, and then somehow you could you could actually count on that
1: yeah, but that's the message we keep hearing right, or at least we kept hearing as we were growing up uh like the that old model that the one that that says if you work hard, if you get a good job then then you'll be rewarded for good with a with stable employment, a guaranteed pension that model has has changed dramatically, and the point you made about diversification. We hear that, of course, with regard to our investments. We're told to diversify and not rely on a single stock or not rely exclusively on on real estate. If you hedge your bets, then you're going to be protected if one of those investments goes astray. But we don't really hear that message as clearly when it comes to diversifying our income or even diversifying our identity. What do you think gets in the way, either in terms of getting that message across or even if people hear it, what obstacles get in the way of diversification of, of what you do as a profession or um, what you call yourself in terms of your identity?
0: Well, I think that your podcast is, is the right place to to approach it and to talk about it because I think that, that oftentimes what does hold people back is if you are legitimately diversifying your business, it means that you typically have to learn how to do a lot of different things. you know you're not you're not just a consultant, you're also a speaker. you're not just a speaker you're also uh, selling online courses or something like that And every time you are trying those things, there's a learning curve. In the beginning you are not going to be good at everything you do. I mean, in fact, m- most likely it will be the opposite. And for a lot of people that feels like a failure. Now, I mean, I w- I would I would push back and say, you know, how is it a failure to not be good at something you've never done? Like that's sort of ridiculous, right? <laughs> like like why would you be good at it? But nonetheless, a lot of people become very invested in in an identity of they are competent and capable, period, across the board. And so anytime there's something that they don't know or that they're not immediately masterful in, it becomes kind of an identity threat. And so I think that holds a lot of us back from really tackling things where we could learn a lot. We could really enhance our our skills greatly. But, you know, you do risk looking a little silly in the beginning.
1: I think that point is very compelling. Uh, there is that idea that if we if we take a leap and try something new, we want to be competent from from the get go. But that's not how life works. Partially, I think that's perhaps because of a societal expectation or a societal obsession with grand openings. The opening should be grand, but the opening doesn't have to be grand as long as the finale is. If you if you take a leap and it doesn't work out as he hoped, you can always tweak, you can always pivot, you can always try something new, as long as you're doing what you advise that people should do, Dory, which is to to diversify so that you're not putting all of your eggs into, into one basket.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: So how did you end up launching your consulting business? Because you walked us through the the experience of getting laid off from your weekly newspaper. How did you move from that, pick up the pieces, and end up launching your your consulting business?
0: There were a couple of steps in between. Uh, after getting laid off as a reporter, I freelanced for a while, uh, which was actually great training as an entrepreneur, because you have to get extremely keyed in to what your customers in this case, your editors want to buy from you. Um, you are not going to make a sale. You are not going to make any money. You are not going to be able to pay your bills unless you get good at that. It is extremely high stakes and fast learning. Uh, so that was helpful. After, I guess, about six months of being a freelance writer, I was offered a position as the press secretary for Robert Reich, who was running at the time for Massachusetts governor. And that was a great learning experience. Uh, but he ended up losing. And then I worked on another campaign. Uh, I was the uh, the New Hampshire communications director for Howard Dean during his presidential campaign. He, of course, also lost. So, you know, you can <laughs> mark up a few, a few failures there. From there, I ended up becoming the executive director of a nonprofit, a small nonprofit in Boston. And I did that for a couple of years. And in the course of running this little nonprofit, I realized something that I had Never really thought about before. It just sort of hadn't occurred to me, which is that running a nonprofit is really exactly the same thing as running a business. And once I realized that, I thought, oh, wait a minute, I could run a business. The fact that I can do this means that I could run a business. And it was such a high stress job because I was pretty much the only person responsible for fundraising. And, you know, I had other mouths to feed in the organization. And I thought, oh, my God, I could actually both make more money and have less stress if I became an entrepreneur. Let's do that. And so that was how I launched about 14 years ago.
1: Did you quit your, your job at the nonprofit before launching the
0: business? In some ways, I did. And in some ways, I didn't. I mean, I I didn't have the worst entry into entrepreneurship, but there's things I would have done differently. This was a tiny nonprofit and I really wanted to do right by them. So I gave them a year's notice. Oh, wow. So they had plenty of time to mount a search. But during that year, um, I spent a lot of time uh, taking courses. I, you know, I signed up for like every professional development course in the world because I knew there was a lot I didn't know about running a business. Um, So I was, you know, constantly uh, taking these courses. I was reading a million books uh, from the library about, consulting and entrepreneurship and just business in general, uh, I really embarked upon a kind of self-education campaign. I was educating myself a lot that was good. What I was not doing, and, and what I would recommend to others, was actually getting clients. I waited to even try to pursue clients until after I had left the nonprofit, because I, you know, I guess I wanted a sort of clean break, and I, you know, I was busy with the nonprofit, tying up all these kind of loose ends, and I wanted to be fair to them and give them my full attention, and blah blah blah. You know, it all sounds good at the time, but you know, really, what you should do, uh, if if any of your listeners are Planning to launch an entrepreneurial venture is what makes an entrepreneur successful. You know, it's not how much you've learned. It's not you know how nice your business cards are. It's do you have clients? And so, actually, acquiring clients would have been the most important thing I could have done, and I didn't. But uh, I hope others uh, will learn from that.
1: It's interesting how learning can sometimes become an escape from doing. We're both knowledge workers, Dory, and it, perhaps it might strike some of the listeners as, as as odd for that statement to, to come from me. But learning can get you only so far, especially if you're not applying that knowledge somewhere. And there's so much noise out there too. And, and some of it is useful noise, of course. But if we're too busy to just trying to take every online course imaginable, read every business book on how to become an entrepreneur, then that can definitely get in the, get in the way of actually getting clients, as you said, which is what you, what you need when you launch your consulting business. And in your book, your latest book, Entrepreneurial You, you talk about how in the early days of your consulting, you actually didn't feel particularly free, even though you you worked for yourself. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was very proud to have built up a business. I mean, eventually I did. uh, And that was great. But it was really through the only models that i knew at the time i was sort of mirroring what i saw around me which was very hands-on labor intensive consulting work and you know it's it's not a bad business but it's uh, and it can be lucrative but it's not a very scalable business and so you know i was making a good six figure salary but i was i was just like driving around all the time. I was going to to meetings and, you know, I had clients in Western Mass. So, you know, I was living in Boston at the time. So, you know, I'd be like getting up at six o'clock in the morning to get on route two and, you know, drive out to Franklin County, which, you know, if you know Massachusetts, it's, you know, even if you don't know Massachusetts, it's like, ah, oh, driving to Franklin County. <laughs> you know, it's just like, no, you don't want to do that. I mean, they have some, you know, it's very pretty and they have some nice bakeries there, but you do not want to be doing that all the time. So it was exhausting. It was exhausting. And I began to sort of realize, uh, first of all, that it, it was just a very tough pace and one that I probably would have a hard time. Sustaining. And second, you know, I began to, to look around and, and see some of my colleagues who seemed to have figured out a more, you know, not stress free, but, but a less high stress, uh, less labor intensive business model. And I thought, you know, I'm an intelligent person. I should be able to do this too. And so I, I really set out to try to understand what it was that they were doing and how I could learn from that.
1: And what exactly was that business model? that they were doing and that you eventually adopted that allowed you to become more independent?
0: There's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, it is diversifying revenue streams away from strictly like one-on-one kind of engagements like or consulting. I I certainly still do those things, but uh, part of how I'm able to limit it is that I have invested very aggressively in brand building which enables me to charge higher fees um, so that I'm doing less of it and it's kind of more high impact. But in addition, where I have been actively cultivating sources of business is in areas that are more scalable. So developing online courses, you know, things like books or other material where you are creating intellectual property that can pay you residuals over time and really trying to create a a flywheel so that when people come into my orbit, there's actually a lot of different things that they can buy or take advantage of rather than the model before where oftentimes it's, okay, you land a consulting client. Fantastic. You do a consulting project for them. And now they're done. And now they don't really need you anymore. So look, let's go find another client. And it's just this constant sort of labor and churn of finding new people to hire you.
1: For those who are listening and who'd like a deeper dive into some of the uh, some of the different strategies that Dory mentioned, I'd I'd highly encourage everyone to check out Dory's latest book, Entrepreneur You, which really is, is excellent. What are some bad recommendations, Dory, that you hear for people about to launch their entrepreneurial journey? In other words, what's one piece of like popular wisdom or conventional wisdom that they should ignore?
0: Well, I think that that one of the one of the biggest is just that many times, and you know, you can understand why people do, but many times when people are launching, they feel a little insecure about the fact that they're new or they don't really know what they're doing. And this certainly was the case for me too. And so they try to like overcompensate by it's like a peacock puffing up their feathers. (laughs) So they they put like way too much effort into the wrong thing. So, I mean, I had a client actually who came to me and he had already done this. uh, Otherwise I would have told him not to do this, but you know, here's a guy just starting out and he spent nearly five grand On a brand identity consultant. And, you know, I say in air quotes, like these people should just be fined for malpractice. I mean, this is a person. Without any clients, he had no business. He was literally just starting, and somebody convinced him that no, what you really need is to have a cohesive brand book so that you're you know which fonts are your fonts, and whenever you're creating your identity pieces, it will provide the comprehensive identity i mean it, it's it's <laughs> ludicrous yeah. that that someone would you know I and I, I feel bad because a, a lot of folks just say, oh well, you know, yeah, that's what I that's what I need no, that's what Coke needs. that's what Macy's needs when you are just starting, your business card could be a ransom note. all you need is <laughs> is someone who will give you money. that is literally it. And so I think that sometimes because we do feel, unsure of ourselves. We think, oh, no one will take me seriously unless I have these accoutrements or these trappings. And the truth is, it is our own credibility that makes people take us seriously. We don't need those trappings. Um, I, Over the past decade, I've developed a real methodology around this, uh, which I call the recognized expert methodology. And what I have discovered in studying you know, thousands of highly successful executives and entrepreneurs is fundamentally there's three things you need in order to become a recognized expert in your field. There's content creation, because you can't be known as an expert if no one knows what your ideas are. Uh, there is social proof, so meaning what is your credibility? Are there things that other people can point to that show you're credible? You wrote this book, or you have this degree, or you worked with these clients that people have heard of, or you write for these Outlets, these media outlets that people have heard of, um, that kind of thing. And then finally, your network, because you need to have people who can help promote you and spread the word about you, help you hone your ideas and, and get better at what you do. If you have those three components, then you can really build a brand as a recognized expert. But, but otherwise, you know, it really doesn't matter how much you're spending on, on brand identity or, or things like that.
1: That's such great advice, and it harkens back to something you mentioned earlier about how sometimes learning can sort of get in the way of doing. I think it's a similar I- idea here, like building a paying an expensive brand consultants to build a brand identity could actually get in the way of the very things, the three points you mentioned, that will help you build credibility in the field and actually have a successful, successful business. You've done, gosh, so many things in your life, Dory. You're a speaker and consultant, author of several award-winning books. You teach classes. Uh, You've got a master's in theology from Harvard. You mentioned you were a journalist. You've made a documentary film. You produced two albums. Is there a leap that you did not take that you wish you had taken?
0: There's not a specific thing that I can point to that I sort of regret not having done for me I actually have a philosophy which is an explicit philosophy which I call optimize for interesting and I feel like pretty much the whole point of living like right why why are we bothering is, <laughs> is that we you know, we need to do interesting things like I don't want to have a boring life and so if something comes along that I find interesting it doesn't really matter to me what the ROI is. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I wouldn't take something on as like my full-time job if if it was just kind of randomly interesting. But in terms of like side projects, like any of these things that I've been able to do, like directing a documentary film or being a jazz producer or, you know, investing in Broadway or writing musical theater, which I also do, like those those things can be done on a part-time basis. And so therefore, whatever risk is capped and they're legitimately fun, they're legitimately interesting. So I almost always will say yes to things like that that I think are cool. I mean, there's plenty of things that other people might think are cool that I would turn down just because they're not right for me. You know, I have a a friend named uh, here in the city named Melanie Curtis, who has written a book and her claim to fame is she used to be a professional skydiver. And she has skydived more than 11,000 times. And I think that is really amazing for her and I would not like to skydive once. I don't <laughs> like to do that once. <laughs> so uh, it might be interesting, but it's not, that one's not for me. But but for most land-based activities, uh, I will say yes. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: that's such a refreshing message, Dory. In a world that's sort of built around optimizing for money, optimizing for interesting is definitely a much more well, interesting way to, to, to live your life, which is why you've you've been able to build such an amazing diversity of, of life and, and work experiences. You already mentioned a number of failures that, that you've had in your life, but uh, I want to sort of ask the question again, perhaps more broadly, were there any other failures in your life that stand out as being particularly valuable? And, and if so, what makes them valuable?
0: Well, I think that, you know, the ones that I have mentioned to you have been probably the starkest professional ones. I think that there's probably, you know, a couple ways to answer this. I mean, one is there's certainly a lot of, I'll, call, I'll just call them micro failures or, you know, again, you know, I sort of debate whether failure is the right term, but it's uh A lack of things turning out the way that you wanted or intended them to. And I I think in the aggregate, just the the persistence that you have to cultivate in order to deal with it is a valuable thing. So I had a project a few months ago. I bought a condo about 18 months ago and I have been slowly and steadily, I'm pretty much done now, but I've slowly not only been like doing all of the things that one needs to do when you move into a new place. But also I was just consolidating a lot of um, old paperwork and a lot of things that I had had in storage. And I had this stack of CDs that were like back in the day when you needed to to back things up on your computer on external CDs, I had a bunch of them. And I was afraid to get rid of them because I wasn't sure exactly what was on them and blah, blah, blah. So I had to go through all of them manually to see what was on there and to see if it was important to retain or not. And anyway, what I discovered was basically all the documents from my professional life, like – 20, 25 years ago uh, when I was just getting out of college, when I was all of these stretches of unemployment. I had folders and folders of cover letters and they were things that, that literally were jobs that I just didn't even remember applying to and I didn't remember applying to them because I never got callbacks. <laughs> I never even got interviewed for them but there were so many. I mean there were in, in a, each one you know can kind of represent like a different a different fork in the road or a different path but you know there was the uh, the gourmet food company that I wanted to do communications for. there was the the University university. multiple universities that I wanted to do communications for. Uh, There was the the nonprofits that I, multiple nonprofits that I applied for uh, program jobs for, you know, none of them wanted me, just like none of them. And so seeing, uh, seeing all of these like little earnest cover letters uh, and these places that never even deigned to give me a callback was interesting, sort of an interesting reminder and just like, okay, you know what, fuck them. I will keep uh, keep moving forward, so I think that, that that is useful. I think on a personal level, I would say that probably the hardest thing that I had was you know I had a uh, a number of years ago I had a very sort of what turned out to be a tumultuous relationship you know the woman that I was involved with I loved her very much, but it just it really became clear to me like it was not a good thing for us to be staying in the relationship once I became one hundred percent certain of that, I ended it but you know, when you really love somebody, that's not really what you want to do. And so I would say that it was it was a success for me that I was able to will myself to extricate myself from that situation. So it was uh you know, definitely felt like a failure, felt like a relationship failure, and was excruciatingly difficult, mostly because she made it that way but <laughs> uh, but nonetheless. You know, I am ultimately glad, you know, you really have to muscle through things like that. So, uh, so I made myself do it.
1: I love the, going back to what you mentioned about your, your cover letters for a moment, it reminded me of um, a practice that Stephen King had when he first started writing. He, uh, when he got his very first rejection letter, he actually nailed it to his bedroom wall. And, and he, of course, he just kept racking up more and more rejections. And he kept adding them to this nail until it could no longer support the weight of the rejection letters. (laughs) (laughs) So then he replaced the nail with a spike and continued doing his job as a writer. And I think it was, if I'm remembering this correctly, it was like five or six years between his first rejection letter and his first published story. And it just shows the, you know, the the determination, the grit, uh, the same type of grit that you had, uh, to Dory, after not getting even callbacks to so many cover letters that that you submitted, but the determination to to keep going, and and the that the value that it brings in the long term, and playing for the long term as opposed to the short term too, as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us, as Dory. And speaking of failures, the listeners don't know, but we actually had to stop the initial recording here because my computer crashed and had to restart. Thank you so much for, for being generous and <laughs> for agreeing to look past that failure of mine and to actually <laughs> to, to, to start recording again. I really, really appreciate that. If people want to know more about you, where can they go online, Dory?
0: Yeah, thank you so much. So if uh, if folks would like to, to learn more, I have more than 500 free articles that I have written for places like Forbes and the Harvard Business Review and Entrepreneur on my website at doryclark.com. But I will also especially point people, uh, if they're interested in the entrepreneurial journey and uh, overcoming, <laughs> embracing and overcoming the failures inherent in that, uh, I do have a, a resource I created, uh, which is the 88-question entrepreneur entrepreneurial you self-assessment and folks can get that for free at doryclark.com it's d-o-r-i-e-c-l-a-r-k.com slash entrepreneur
1: excellent and we'll put all of that in the the show notes dory thank you so much again for for joining
0: thank you so good to speak with you Ozan.
1: Hi everyone, thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, You can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.